Lord, I ask that you anoint the words that I speak and that we all hear today. Because the only seed that we want to fall to the ground is a seed that you sow and plant in our hearts. So give us understanding and insight, Lord, so that we can, with your help, make sense of all that we read and hear today for the benefit of your gospel and kingdom. Amen. So it's my, uh, it's my privilege and pleasure to start our series on what is arguably one of the most exciting books of the Bible, uh, Acts, or to give it its full title, The Acts of the Apostles. And in this book, we've got Hollywood-worthy stuff. We've got riots, we've got the resurrection of the disciple Dorcas, we've got close calls, arrests, beatings, trials, rescues, and of course, the dramatic conversion of the Apostle Paul. Speaking of Hollywood... Um, fortuitously, though I don't believe in fortune, uh, just at the weekend, Netflix brought, up, brought out a film called Paul, Apostle of Christ. And I thought, ah, this is good timing, because it's all about, the, the film is all about Paul is in prison, and the disciple Luke comes to see him in prison and starts to take notes about Paul's life. So Paul talks him through what is later to become the, books of, the book of Acts. Uh, it's, it's a work of fiction, okay? So don't derive, if you do watch it, don't derive your doctrine from it. But it's really interesting to get some insight into what was happening to the Christians at the time in particular. I mean, people died so that we could have this. And that bit that we don't focus on is true. And if it, you, are, you and I in this situation praying, God, please save us from the lions, and we were killed, how would that affect our faith? But it's really interesting to see how they are portrayed as going into these really dark, difficult situations, full of faith, full of hope about what's to come. So worth a look, I'd say, if you have Netflix. Uh, in this book, we start to see the Gospel of Christ spreading beyond the Jews as it's carried to Rome, which was at the time uh, the centre of civilization, and then beyond there. And Dave Fellingham kind of stole my thunder a little bit last week because, uh, amongst other things, Acts is concerned with the power of the Holy Spirit, right? This is a big deal for us, isn't it? We teach that when we repent and accept Christ, when we finally turn from doing things our way and accept his rule and reign... He fills us with the Holy Spirit and it's the Holy Spirit who gives us gifts and it's the Holy Spirit who changes us, renews our mind and makes us more like Jesus. We can't say with absolute certainty who wrote this book. It was probably this doctor called Luke and as you may know, Acts is the second of a two-part work, the first being the Gospel of Luke. We're pretty sure it's the same author for both. So Acts picks up where the Gospel leaves off and at the end of Luke we've seen Jesus risen from the dead, he's appeared to the disciples and he's convinced them beyond any doubt that he is who he always claimed to be and then he ascended into heaven. It's probably hard for us to imagine what this must have been like. The disciples had pinned their hopes on Jesus and then he's killed before their eyes. They must have been devastated, wondering how it had all gone wrong. Had they been mistaken about Jesus? And then the inexpressible joy when Jesus does what only he can do and beats death. 
And so we see the disciples jubilant again. The, the final two verses of Luke say, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. That's Luke 24, 52 to 53. I bet their enthusiasm was in, infectious. At the very least, it would have caused people to ask questions. Weren't these a follow, followers of that carpenter who'd just been crucified? What's all the fuss about? Well, in Acts, we find out exactly what all the fuss was about. Let's read Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So shiver just gone down your spine. Angels have just told the disciples that Jesus will come back. Angels! Let's dig into this passage verse by verse. So verse 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So the first book, as I say, is the Gospel of Luke's. So the author of Acts intends this to be in continuation of the historical account that he's given. And in fact, if you leapfrog from Luke's over John straight into Acts, you'll immediately see how the two books can continue And you'll see how the entirety of the gospel has been leading up to a sort of fulfillment in Acts. We don't know for sure who's meant by the name Theophilus in this verse. Probably it refers to a particular person. But given how widely these books ended up being circulated, and given that Theophilus literally translated means loved by God, the author may well have intended a double meaning, including in Theophilus, all Christians everywhere. So this book is written to us. The books of uh, Luke and Acts, they're written in top quality Greek. And in fact, the style of Acts closely matches the style of the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, that was being used at the time to read what was their scriptures. So the author was conscious of writing something that was of great spiritual significance. From a literary perspective, he knew his stuff, and he chooses his words carefully and with precision. So it's interesting that he writes, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. 
began. So the strong implication is that Jesus has continued that work. He's still doing. He's still teaching. And we know this to be true. In John 14, 26, Jesus is recorded as saying, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So Jesus' work, his mission and his teaching, they all continue because he gives us the Holy Spirit. He teaches us more of himself and he helps us to do his work and fulfill his mission. The work of Christ continues through us. Honestly, I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded of this time and time again because I have a bad habit of becoming self-sufficient, doing things in my own strength, in my own way. Take worship leading. God taught me a, a really difficult lesson during my time at university, and I'm grateful that he chose to do it there where any damage I might have done was limited. So I learned to play the guitar in university, and that's where I started leading worship, mainly at meetings of the Christian Union. And I enjoyed it, and before long, without really realising it, I started thinking to myself, hey, I can do this. And as a young man, I wanted so badly to be on stage playing music. It was a dream. It was a fantasy. As soon as I thought to myself, I can do this, I stopped seeking God's guidance as much. So I'd put a list of songs together, I'd play them through, and I'd think I was doing a good job. And then one day, near the end of my time at university, I think it was my last ever CU meeting. Uh, I just led worship as usual and then I sat down. I don't remember the exact words that God used, but I heard him say quietly to me, Rob, did you involve me in that? Were you even worshipping me? And it broke me. I mean, we all hate hypocrisy, don't we? And I'd just done the very thing that I despised, fake worship leading. There's a vast difference between leading worship in your own strength and leading worship submitted to God. Vast. There's a huge difference between doing anything in your own strength compared to doing it with a submitted heart calling out to God for his help. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's James 4, 6. I learned, at least I hope I learned my lesson well and truly that day, for a long time I couldn't even bear the thought of leading worship because I felt like a fraud. It was a couple of years before I had an opportunity to lead lead worship again. In the meantime, Sharon and I were married and we'd moved to Chester and joined a, a new church, Northgate. And in spite of how I felt, I still felt the call to serve in this way. So when the next opportunity came to lead worship, I took it with trepidation. And that time, and every time since, I've been asking the Holy Spirit for his help and guidance. And every time I stand in front of a group of people, big or small, whether to lead worship or to preach, I do it in the full and certain knowledge that I can't do it in my own strength. I mustn't. Without him, 
we can do nothing. John 15, 5. Do you understand? We need the Holy Spirit so much. We, we mustn't exclude him from any part of our lives. We have to submit. We have to let him lead and guide us. This is for our own good and for his glory, for God's glory. If you remember nothing else from this sermon, remember this. Always ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. Whatever you're doing, always Jesus began his earthly mission over 2,000 years ago and he continues that mission through us. It's not our mission. It's not our ministry. It's his. Be wary of that phrase, my ministry. Be wary of following Christian celebrities because of their ministry. Be wary of joining congregations built around the gifting of one human. It's not our ministry. It's not our purpose. It's not our doing. Christ began to do and teach. If there's any good that comes from what we do now, from what we now teach in his name, it's not our doing. I would love it if your heart is changed during this sermon, if you learn something, if your faith grows. And I'm encouraged, truly, when people tell me this has happened. But make no mistake about it, any change, any learning, any growth that comes from the preaching of God's word, that is not the doing of any man or woman. It's the Holy Spirit who leads us into all truth, who teaches us. Like any preacher, I am just a vessel through which I pray living water flows. So if you see yourself as empty, if you're unsure you have anything to offer, good! Come just as you are. Let the Holy Spirit do the rest. And I would rather have one person coming in humility and brokenness than a hundred who are in themselves talented and inspiring and who know it. Let Christ's work continue. Unless... The Lord builds the house, the workers labour in vain. Psalm 127 verse 1. So Acts 1 verse 2 continues. All that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after which he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So Jesus left this earth, but not first without giving standing instructions to the apostles, to the disciples who he sent explicitly to take his good news to the entire world. In Luke 24, 47, Jesus says that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now, this was a huge commission, wasn't it, for the disciples to preach the gospel everywhere. And they already knew that their faith was outlawed. They were seen by heretics, by Jews and Romans alike. The punishment for their message would be death. It's just as well that Jesus gave his commands through the Holy Spirit. Because these commands came with power. They came with compassion. They came with motivation, with boldness, resistance to fear. Let us all ask God to send the Holy Spirit to move us so that we have no choice but to act. No choice 
but to speak. Because what will move me from my comfortable life? Lord, please give us your commands through the Holy Spirit. We need your words. We need your life. We need your power. We need your compassion. Verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now let's stop for a second and look back on the ministry of Christ. For three years, the disciples had followed Jesus round and they'd seen the blind receive sight, the lame walk, people freed from demon possession. They'd seen dead people raised to life, for goodness sake. And yet, the Lord, our Lord Jesus, knew full well that his disciples were weak, fearful, and full of doubts, especially after his death. And we wonder sometimes why God doesn't just come down and just prove his existence to people. You know, do a few healings, a few smitings, toss a few mountains into the sea, that kind of thing. The truth is, he did. He's done that time and time again. Read the Bible. You've got sticks turned into snakes. Massive armies defeated by a few hundred godly men. A river parted in the middle so that there were two walls of water on either side. And yes, dead people come back to life. Miraculous healings. And the people who saw these things with their own eyes, they very quickly went back to living their lives their own way as if none of it had happened, as if none of it was relevant. Some of those people went on to cheer as Jesus went to the cross. The disciples that Luke refers to in verse 3, they'd seen Jesus for themselves seen his miraculous ministry with their own eyes, heard his inspired words with his own ears, and yet they were so soon after Christ's death in a state of deep dudgeon, wondering if they'd imagined it all. And the thing that strikes me most about this verse, rather than criticise, rather than berating them, rather than getting on with a jolly good smiting, Jesus spends time with them. He gives them more proof when they didn't deserve any proof. He tells them more about the kingdom of God, of all that is to come. He fills them with hope. Oh, the kindness of our Savior, the way he constantly treats us more gently than we deserve. We owe him everything. He gave them many proofs. He suddenly appeared in a locked room. He ate and drank with them to show he wasn't a ghost. He let Thomas touch the scars in his hands and side. He built their faith. And what do we think Jesus told them of the kingdom of God? I think he told them that it had come, that it was growing, that God's kingship exists in the hearts and the minds of the people who love him and serve him. That one day, at Christ's return, at the resurrection of the saints, the kingdom will come fully, and God himself will live among us. Verses 4 and 5. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. 
For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So stay put, Jesus says. The gift I promised to you is coming. Now what's this baptism he's referring to? If if we look back at Luke chapter 3, we see John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, and he's out baptizing people. He's going around telling people to repent, to turn from their sins, and as a symbol of this, he's baptizing them, literally dunking them fully in whatever river or stream was to hand. And the people who came to see John, they were wondering whether he was the Messiah, the one they'd been waiting for. The Jews disliked the Roman occupation and they dreamed about this saviour who they thought would come and free them from their bondage. In Luke 3.16, John answered them all saying, I baptise you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That's the promise. And if you know the book of Acts, you'll know what's coming. And if not, not, uh, I'm afraid you'll have to wait a little longer until we get to Acts chapter 2. Acts 1.5, you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, Jesus says. And it was true. And reading through the account, that took place about 10 days later. For us, it will be 14 days later when Dave Scotland is due to preach on chapter 2. Verse 6, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What are they talking about, restore the kingdom to Israel? This is not just about the Roman occupation. This is not just about the Jewish nation wishing to declare independence. This is a reference to David. David was a king of Israel. Some might say the king of Israel. He lived a thousand or more years before Christ. He was the king that God favoured, favoured because he was faithful to God. In 2 Samuel 7.16, we hear God speaking to David and he says this, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So when the Jews are asking if Jesus is going to restore the kingdom to Israel, they want to know if they are going to be a significant king-led nation again that's astonishing isn't it they walked and talked with Jesus they know who he is and yet they still wonder if something else is going to happen if there will be some other king guys this is him Jesus he's the king It's not about Israel's rank among the nations. It's not about the right to self-govern. It's not about political or military power. Jesus Christ, a direct descendant of King David, he is your king. We shouldn't be too hard on the disciples. I suspect we wouldn't have spotted it either. The kingdom had already been restored, just not in the way they expected A couple of the prophets made reference to this. Jeremiah, for example, Jeremiah 31, 33. God says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And God's saying, listen guys, you're not going to need any other king. It's me, I'll be your God, your rule maker, your king. And Jesus arrived And they nearly got it. 
But when the Romans crucified Jesus, they, uh, Pontius Pilate put a sign over the cross which said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. It was literally right there in front of their eyes. But the Jewish priest wouldn't have it. I wonder how often I come close to knowing God's truth and blunder right past it because I'm stubborn and blind. Open our eyes, Lord. So the question the disciples asked about restoring the kingdom, there's more to it than the arrival of Christ, though. Listen to Jesus' reply, Acts 1-7. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So there's an implication that there'll be more. One day, the rule and reign of Christ will come in all its fullness and every knee will bow to him. When will that be? Jesus says, it's not for you to know. It's not for us to know. It's not for us to know God's timeline. He chooses not to share it. And we should respect his decision there. All these so-called prophets who've predicted the end of the world and say they know when Christ will return, listen to me, they have no special revelation. They're just guessing. Remember, God himself has said, I'm not telling. We'll find out when we find out. And then Jesus immediately, skillfully, redirects their attention. He says, verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Focus on the task at hand. That must have been exciting, right? Being told by Jesus himself that they're going to receive power. I mean, these people have seen firsthand what the power of God has accomplished through Jesus. They're going to receive power. That's quite a promise. But note that the promise has a purpose. They're not receiving power so that they can do tricks, so that they can impress people, so that they can build reputations for themselves, so that they can develop their own personal branding, so that they can build a megachurch. They're receiving power explicitly so that they can witness to the world, so that they can spread the gospel, the good news about the salvation that Jesus brings. If God gives us power, heaven help us if we abuse it. So his agenda is clear. Reach the world with a message of peace, love, justice, mercy, redemption, repentance, freedom, submission to God's rule. They did a pretty good job, didn't they, those disciples? In starting with just 12 men, they changed the world. Not their doing, of course. It wasn't their power. It was God's doing. It was the Holy Spirit's power. Verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So Jesus had gone to heaven to be with his Father, and that needed to happen so that the Holy Spirit would come as he'd promised. Verses 10 and 11. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. 
Have you ever seen an angel? I, I don't mean imagine you've seen an angel or seen one in a vision. I mean actually seen an honest to goodness in the flesh or whatever they have, angelic being. Most of us would have been rendered incapable of speech. Jesus has just vanished up into the clouds and then suddenly these visitors appear and they are very clearly not human. And when we read stories of, in the Bible of angelic visitations, we often see people fall on their faces, overcome with awe and fear, frankly. It's a blinking angel, guys! And not just one of them, two! Two blinking angels! And the angels say, hey dudes, stop gawping into space. Jesus is coming back the way you just saw him leave one day. I doubt that any of the angels said, sorry, any of the disciples said anything. I bet they were all standing there with their mouths wide open, minds blown. What an astonishing story. And they were part of it. And perhaps after they'd recovered from the shock of this, the disciples might have thought about what the angels said. Jesus is coming back. And the same way he left. So Jesus left in a physical body and he will return in a physical body. And we don't know when he will return. Verse 7, it's not for us to know the time, but we do know how. But how can we be certain that Jesus will return? I mean, apart from the fact that we respect the Bible and we've just read it here, how can we be sure that what's written is true? Do you ever have any of those kinds of doubts? Or is it just me? The answer was in something that Dave Fellingham said last week. He mentioned something the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians. Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. And in, in him, that's Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your, your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Okay, so... Pay close attention now because I'm going to build a case and I want to make sure this is clear and that you follow it. When someone becomes a Christian, they are changed. I don't mean that they change their mind. I mean literally, radically changed from the inside. This just happens to us, hasn't it? And it's not simply a case of choosing to behave better. That's not Christianity, sorry. That's legalism. That's religiosity. The Pharisees were very good at choosing to do the right thing, and Jesus was not a fan. Now, the way that we know we are truly saved is the fact that certain things change within us, almost without our permission. We may sin the same sins from before conversion, but now there's this really shouty voice inside us going, don't do it! We we attend a worship service and where we previously enjoyed the music and the atmosphere, now something inside joins in. It can be almost overwhelming. Our faults become more apparent to us, yay, because the Holy Spirit highlights them because he wants to partner with us to remove these faults. So the sign of a Christian is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who does all these things in us. 
And if you have the Holy Spirit in you, well, that's a deposit, a down payment, a promise, a guarantee, an ironclad guarantee of what's to come. And what is it that's yet to come? Revelation 21, 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now, Jesus Christ will return, and we know this to be true because he's already given us the Holy Spirit who lives within us. The presence of the Holy Spirit living within us as evidenced by the way he changes us is our guarantee of Christ's return. If you've been changed by your conversion experience, that's enough for you to be sure of the rest of this story, to be sure of the great destiny that awaits us. So the disciples eventually knew it beyond any doubt it was their faith and their testimony that led them to proclaim the gospel wherever they went it's got to be something pretty strong that you believe and know for you to look at the face of death and still keep going because of their faith and because of the sacrifice of Christ we can share the same hope they had the hope that Christ will return in glory, will establish a permanent physical kingdom, and make all things new. Now, this hope is too good to keep to ourselves. Wouldn't you agree? Lord, I ask that you strengthen our faith, that you forgive us for our weakness and our doubts. Thank you for your kindness and compassion to us that you keep showing us of yourself. Thank you, Lord, for your power at work. Thank you, Lord, that you give us power to preach your word, to spread the good news, to be your witnesses. Lord, forgive us for our fear and our lack of boldness, the missed opportunities, and please give us more And please give us the power of your Holy Spirit to motivate us, to give us compassion and the boldness to speak for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of your glory and so that the name of Jesus Christ will be exalted in this nation and this world. Amen.